Hi there. Welcome to The Professor's Inn. I'm Kel Weinhold. I am the productivity coach for The Professor's Inn, and we are glad you are here. And I am Dr. Karen Kelsky of The Professor's Inn, and as always, I'm delighted that you joined us today. And today, I am super excited that we are joined by a remarkable guest, Deja Rollins, who I got to know when I was invited to do a TEDx talk. I knew nothing about TEDx talks, and it turns out that they do them in little pods with like three or four people at a time, four or five people at a time. Deja was the absolute outstanding star of that TEDx talk module. I became an instant fan. I stalked her and went on her Twitter and her Facebook and asked her if she'd be on our on our podcast, and here she is. So very, very happy to welcome you here today, Deja. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here with you both. Could you take a second and tell everybody all about you, whatever you want them to know before we start this journey? I absolutely will. Again, you know, thank, thank you both for having me here. Uh, yeah, you know, Karen and I met, uh, I guess we could say on the virtual TEDx stage, mm-hmm. right? And um, I was approached by the University of Arkansas at Monticello um, as a second year doctoral student and fellow at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign uh, to come and do a talk about performative allyship. So I'm here today to do that. But um, at Illinois, I study mediated communication and technology, uh, but with an emphasis on race and blackness more specifically and identity formation and more recently, I've been interested in this idea of the emotion that we carry with us as we engage in our media experiences and how that emotion may or may not change when we're done mm-hmm. with our media experiences. So um, at Illinois now, born and raised in Dallas, Texas, go Cowboys. <laughs> um, but uh, my professional life has been in broadcast media. So that's what's kind of brought me to this media space. I um, At 19, I started my broadcast media journey and radio um, at a rhythmic station in East Texas where I got my undergraduate degree and then uh, got my master's degree in emerging media and communication at uh, the University of Texas at Dallas. And that's when I was introduced to some of this critical work as it relates to media, right? Looking at media, engaging in media and criticizing some of the things that I, being in media, performed and perpetuated and it, it got me, you know, here to Illinois doing the work that I do now, critically analyzing media, its affordances, how we're affected and impacted by the relationships that we're seeing happening. A lot of the um, allyship that we saw in the summer of 2020 after the uh, death of my brother, George Floyd, and that's what really set me off. Like, what the hell is happening here? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm, I'm here now having these conversations, still learning, right? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a student, right? So I don't have all the answers. I'm still studying these things uh, on a theoretical level. I'm still studying them on a personal level as a young Black woman. And so I like to preface anything that I say going forward with the, with the fact that I'm still a student. I'm still learning. And so uh, some of this is based on experience, right? Uh, and a lot of this is based on what it is that I'm reading in the literature that I've been exposed to thus far. Yeah. So I'd love to have you walk us through the concept of performative allyship and, and you know, that was the subject of your TEDx talk. And uh, I imagine, so, you know, obviously you already mentioned the summer of 2020 and then there's the whole academy. And I think there's probably a lot of performative allyship in the academy as well. So just tell us what you, what, what, what you think about that, what you have to say. 
Okay, so let's let's just you know I think when we talk about performative allyship, we got to break it down, right? Let's talk about allyship first, mm-hmm. and then we can talk about how you perform, <laughs> right? Act theatrics that's attached to that allyship. So when you look online and when you think about what an ally truly is, it's this constant act of uniting yourself with another, you know, whether it's your group or yourself individually with another to promote this common interest, right? In all the ways that you are capable. Right. And mm-hmm. so I think people should understand that that's what an ally is. It's mm-hmm. it's 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 sacrifice. It's selfless. Right. And yeah. it's a commitment that you made, not something I'm forcing you to do. You said you were an ally. Yep. Mm-hmm. I didn't force you to be an ally. You mm-hmm. said you were an ally. Mm-hmm. So it's this constant act of uniting yourself and your group. Right. But I guess we have to start at the individual level first. Right. So uniting yourself with another group that you see is marginalized, disenfranchised or oppressed. And doing whatever it is in your power and your ability as someone not going through those things to help in their resistance or help in their movement, whatever that is, right? That's what an ally is. Um, when you perform that allyship, right? In my experience, in my opinion, what we saw last summer from a lot of organizations, from a lot of people on our timelines, because different things were trending in the media, right? You you go out and you hashtag this, you hashtag that, I see you, I feel you, I hear you, I stand with you, hashtag Black Lives Matter, but it stops there. Right. You're, pro, you're, 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 you're taking pictures of yourself saying these things or doing these things, but when it's time to enact real change in your real life, you are absent, you are silent, you are not moving because it's a movement. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so there's action that is rooted in allyship. So if you're performing it, if you think about performance in the most general sense, you have to be moving to be performing. (laughs) And so if you are not moving, you are not you're not doing the work. Right. Right. For sure. So, you know, I'll get to preaching y'all. No, (laughs) no, you go. I was just sitting here. The the limit of podcasts is that, you know, it's our voices. And uh, so Karen and I are like nodding, <laughs> going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> part, part of it is, is that I never, uh, I never want to interject my own voice in your, in right. yours. At the same time, I want to be like, yeah, uh-huh. So uh-huh. I'm kind of in a, in a, ba- I've been in a battle with myself <laughs> over here. I don't know about you. Yeah. Well, so, <laughs> so, so, so chime I'm, in. Uh-huh. Really, you I'm, want us to chime in? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. So I'm really if I could just follow up on that, and I really appreciate it, and I love that idea of movement, and I right. and I love the idea that we have to really challenge what we think movement is, because you know you can think of yourself, uh, and by you in this particular case, I'm just gonna go with like nice white person, right? You th- you're, you've got Black Lives Matter, and you're somewhere in your life prominently displayed. That can feel like movement. Um, showing up at a rally can feel like movement. And, and I, I saw something the other day and I actually, uh, screen capped it and put it in my, um, regular rotation on my phone, my watch, my, my Apple watch as a favorite. And it said that basically if you weren't, um, writing a check, moving resources or redistributing power, it was performance. I agree. And I, and I, that to me, it's like every day. So where, where can you do those three things? So 
I'm interested in, in your experience. And let me just go back and say, I'm really grateful that you are a graduate student and new to the conversation at the academic level, because I think that's where the disruption can happen. I yeah. think that the people who have been so completely shaped by the academy start to just parrot a line that doesn't move us. It just keeps the circular conversation. So if in your observation at, at, at Illinois and beyond, where do you see the most, well, just where do you see performative allyship happening both at the administrative level? I mean, start wherever you want to. I'm just interested in all the places where you're just like, ah, there they go again. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not, you know, just Illinois, it's just academia in general, right? right? For sure. You, you, um, you've got people creating diversity, equity, and inclusion positions and committees, but not putting the funding. You talk about writing a check, right? Right. Not putting the funding behind it to get real work done, right? right? You, you've got these broad statements that were posted, especially last summer, um, and that are no longer present on websites. <laughs> it was just during, you know, that you've got these broad statements that are temporarily on these websites and and these goals that aren't really measurable. And that part really pisses me off, you know, and you're you're putting this out to your staff, you're putting this out to your 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 students or whatever, saying I'm gonna we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. We're not following up on those. How how are we looking on those goals that you posted last summer? Right. How are we gonna measure some of these things that you say we need to do? And financially, what are we going to be doing to move that forward? Um, these land acknowledgments that I have mixed feelings about, right? Acknowledging yeah. that, oh, this is the land of this tribe. It's like if you're not gonna give me my land back, then let's stop talking about it. Right. Yeah. Right. If you're not going to do anything financially, if you're not going to do anything physically to um, reverse that situation, then there's what well, you going to remind me that you just you just, you know, stuck me for my land. Right. You know, right. and I, just, I have mixed feelings about that, you know, because there's nothing being done about it. Right. Um, you know, using black students as the face of your race work and, and and pushing them into the front. And then once you get your grant or you get this done, you're no longer relying on those students or involving those students as much. Now, again, this is just what I've talked about with some, you know, black students within the academy that they have experienced, yeah. you know, um, in any way that People and I'm talking about white people in this conversation. I want to be very clear for sure because this is where the power lies, mm-hmm. right? Right, right. Yeah, in the academy, right? And so, did you say something, Karen? No, I'm just like, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, white yeah. people. It's <laughs> us. This is, where, this is where the power. I'm not going to tiptoe around the fact <laughs> that I'm talking about white people. Right, right. right? That's where the power lies if we're being honest about it and they have to acknowledge their power and positionality. If you say that you're going to be an ally, then you need to be doing something and not benefiting in capitalist ways, you know, off of um, your power mm-hmm. and your positionality. I've been in um, meetings where I've seen people who, you know, it was like, oh, we're going to highlight black voices, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a panel of folks. And then there's this white scholar doing race work, which I don't have a problem with. But if you're an ally, that was a position for you to give that seat to another black scholar or another black author who could have really benefited from being in front of all of those individuals who could have bought their book. Those are the type of things that I'm talking about. Give yeah. up your seat. Yeah. Give right. up the, your redistrib- seat. the redistribution of power. Redistribute, power. redistribute that power. Right. Mm-hmm. If you really are about that life. Right. Or you, does it, it just look good and feel good and appease your ego to say that I'm an ally? 
yeah. right? Because because of social media, right? And because of how information can easily be transmitted now through emerging and digital media platforms, there's all of these different movements that anybody can decide that they want to be an ally for. Mm-hmm. You can pop a sticker on your laptop, throw a hashtag in your bio, you can tweet it out several times and you think you've done the work. Right. I was um, speaking with a professor of mine about some of the work that I I want to do. And I was introduced to the term narcotizing dysfunction. Um, I don't know that And it was my first time ever hearing this term. Narcotizing dysfunction. Okay. And so I I believe, I'm going to make sure I got this right, is that it's basically when, you know, when your work online or the things that you say you're going to do online, or it takes the place of actually doing real work. Right. Sure. Right. And so, again, I, I need to be more well versed on that specific, you know, um, term. But I remember him bringing this up to me and thinking, mm, we see a lot of that. <laughs> so the, what you say you're going to do, not matching up with what you really do, it takes the place. Well, I said I said BLM. I said, mm-hmm. you know, um, I see you. I hear you. I feel you. But what did you do? That's what I want to know. Right. So so here's a this is a. Might seem like a little, little step off to the side, but I think, yeah. but I think it's interesting is that that I see this. So I'm the productivity coach for the professors in, and I work with a lot of people who who are trying to get their work done. And there's a particular uh, habit that people get into, um, especially are really articulate, really um, well versed people, where they talk about their work a lot, but yeah. they don't write. Yeah. So they sit and talk about their work, but they never get to the writing part. And that reminds me of that in the sense that there's in some ways you dissipate your energy by talking about it all the time. Number one. And number two, the writing of it and the work of allyship is as opposed to the talking of it is work. It is ego work to step back and say, I'm not going to be on this panel. There's a loss that you have to acknowledge for yourself, not like you're going to march out there and say, look at all I gave up. But I mean, there is a point at which you say, wow, yeah, okay, I'm going to give this up. It's, it's, it's uncomfortable. Yeah. This is not a comfortable feeling, but I have a commitment to this, verse, which is very similar to it is not comfortable to sit my butt in my chair and, and hammer out these sentences. It's a lot easier to just talk a good game. So yeah. I... For those of you who are listening who might be having a little trouble figuring out how this is a really regular pattern, think about your how you talk about your work and don't get it done. Uh-huh. Are you talking about your commitment the same way yeah. you're not getting it done? So mm. No, you, you bring up really good points. And so I think it's important when, you know, because I will sit or we'll sit and we'll talk about allyship or performative allyship. And so so how you know, how can white people not be categorized as performing their allyships. What is your responsibility? And this is where I want to take the conversation next. Yeah. Right. And so, I, again, the, this term of consistency, mm-hmm. right? Consistency requires action. Right. Don't wait for Black bodies to become a headline to start making noise or doing the work and writing books and doing research because, oh, this is a hot topic. Yeah. I had someone tell me I was writing, writing, writing some work. Uh, make this this sexier. This is not, nothing sexy about black people dying. Make this make this introduction sexier. Oh, what? Yeah. You know, that's a violence uh, that, that, right there. That was a side note that just popped into my head. But consistency, right. right? Don't wait for us to become a trending topic for you to decide that you want to do 
this work if it's only going to be temporary. Speaking up when necessary, but also knowing when to sit back and listen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because you always get to take up space, white people. You can sit the hell down for a minute and let someone else take up space and you can be quiet and listen to others' experiences because you don't know. But white people think they know everything because Mm -hmm. society has set it up in such a way that we we are the end all be all. It's this this normative whiteness, Mm -hmm. you know, standing up when your positionality affords you this privilege to be heard. I think that's important to mention, but also sitting this one out, like we talked about, when opportunities that come in abundance for you could benefit someone else from the group you claim you support. Mm -hmm. Again, emphasizing the fact that I'm talking to white people who say that they want to be an ally. Mm -hmm. I'm not asking white people for anything. I'm talking to the people who say, hey, I am an ally for Black lives. I see what's happening. I see the disenfranchisement, the oppression. I want to use my power, my position to help Black people in their movement. That's who I'm talking to. Mm -hmm. I'm not asking white folks to do anything that they haven't already themselves agreed to do. So this is the audience that I'm speaking to when I talk about performative allyship or allyship in general. Calling out your racist co-workers and colleagues in the department and sensitive friends that make comments and jokes and staff meetings, you know, family members, because it starts there sometimes. Mm -hmm. Thanksgiving. You know, we got we we let, let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. Not yeah, being yeah, afraid. We have to be willing to be uncomfortable and make That's other it. white people uncomfortable. And if there's a, if there is one unspoken rule of white society, it's let don't make anyone uncomfortable. Don't make a fellow white person uncomfortable ever. But we, but right? I have to be uncomfortable. Yeah. I have to tone myself down. Right. Yeah. I have to. We create trainings and all of this where white people feel safe. <laughs> we don't want to make the white people feel uncomfortable. But <laughs> in the meantime, yeah. I'm still dealing with overt, covert racism and, right. and, and, right. and, and microaggressions. But so you can feel safe. And so you can, I'm done with that. Right. That hasn't gotten us anywhere. Mm-mm. Being friendly and being nice and being quiet. Mm-mm. Right. But I do want to mention, because, you know, I talk a lot about movement and action. There's things that can be done behind the scenes. I understand and I get that some people aren't vocal and, you know, they're not the most, uh, you know, um, extroverted individuals, if you will. So there is there is work that can be done behind the scenes. You don't have to be, you know, out in the front to be effective. I think it's important for me to put that caveat in there. Right. Yeah, because we talked about writing checks. But when we talk about writing checks, let's talk about this, not just to national organizations. Do the work right. if you're an ally to see what's happening in your community. Right. What organizations can benefit from your check, right. from your voice, from your privilege, from your positionality? How can you step outside of your comfort zone to do something extra for this group that you said? you were an ally for. Sometimes it's this quiet work in a faculty meeting or a curriculum or a graduate, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, where you evaluate the grad students? I don't know what it's called, but I know yeah, what it is. Yeah, anyway, so, you know, a couple when, times right. a year when you, the faculty, well, a couple times a year when the faculty get together to uh, progress reports on the grad students. Yeah, and yeah. it's just the quiet work of, of basically saying, yeah, this grad student is really good, is doing important work, even right. though the work doesn't look like what the other student, the white students are doing, 
and it might be challenge some of our expectations about our discipline and the student deserves funding and really fight yeah. and this is not going to be a very public thing but it's it's behind the scenes in a way but it's the way that um you know you know our audience who listens to us they're academics and so right. like, what can you do well you can be an advocate in the non-glamorous place of your faculty meetings and so on well and they're the right. incredibly uncomfortable places well right? they are because, because your colleague because it's like status well, there's so right. much judgment, so much pressure, so much everybody can form that if you're sitting in that meeting that says, no, we want to make sure that we look at this person's record, not through a classic, you know, this kind of lens, this sort of white, white lens, right? Mm -hmm. This cisgendered white male lens that says right. this is Let's what success it. is, right? So if yep. we say, hey, hang on just a second. You know, I think we need to think about the measurements we're using here and who who wrote the measurements and and right. and just say that out loud. I mean, that, just that saying alone that out loud, is to say out loud. out loud. It's like let's say it out loud, just like you were saying. Let's just say it. People the measurement we're using right here was written is, for was, some was created by and for someone else. Right. So, right. are we going to keep using that measurement? And that's the kind of thing that is the is the very, very, very hard thing to mm -hmm. say. It's the it's the thing to say to stop performing and start doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, and then for that not to really be as problematic, you need black faculty. Well, right? yeah, for sure. Who can understand and speak on behalf of those students. Right. Right? And so when you've got just a sprinkle of black faculty in, you know, your department and they don't feel like they 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 can speak up or speak out, then you you have situations like that where they feel they have to be silenced. Because remember, we want the white people to be comfortable. <laughs> be comfortable, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem. Yeah. Right, right. And you right. know, that happens in tenure cases too. Even I think maybe at yeah. the most intense place in the academy that it happens sure. is that there's this intensive recruitment of black uh, faculty at the assistant professor level everybody's paying lip service saying we want to diversify our faculty and the, right. and then the faculty go through the five years and then they come up for tenure and oftentimes sometimes their file is is identical to the to the white uh, tenure candidate or better or let's better, say better let's better. say that too and <laughs> yeah. uh, and they're still getting turned down because of like total absolute racism but sometimes their file looks different and it's because they've had this kind of um, inequitable burden of like advising and mentorship plus experiencing the aggressions and the violence and the racism and so then there sometimes there has to be accommodation or not accommodation but um acknowledgement of that and the, so it breaks down on so many levels right at that te point of getting tenure yeah, no, I, I want to know if you want to speak to that first before. You know, I feel like I, I'm not there yet. I'm a grad student, sure, right? So I, I have to respect where I am in the um, in my, my positionality, right? I don't know what it's like to be up for tenure. You know, hell, I don't know what it's like to be done with my PhD. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. I'm just call, I'm just calling shit like I see. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, we saw that with Nicole Hannah Jones, right? Yes. Doing amazing work with the 1619 Project. Path-breaking work. Tenure, goes up for tenure and doesn't get it. For what? Justify. Because a, because a white... Uh, mm -hmm. well, 
Because a white what donor, donor uh, regent went out well, to the donor went to the board well, of regents and said, "I this is not this I'm is not intellectual." No, it was right. the, the argument that was made, and I think this is really important to the conversation that we're having. The argument yeah. that was made on some level was this was not intellectually rigorous work. <laughs> Ridiculous. And so what what that is the the code word for that? I mean, that's just coded yeah. language for this was not written from a white male perspective yep. and and doesn't have the citations that I would use in my tedious process. Right. Therefore it's not rigorous. And yeah. it's like so so let's just say that. I mean this intellectual rigor thing Oh that's code is that's a such coded a... shit all over. Oh the that's place. such a code. Oh, yeah. It's used to oh, gatekeep yeah. everywhere. It's used mm-hmm. to gatekeep for black scholars, Everything. indigenous scholars, second language scholars, yeah. it's used all, all over the place it. when they don't want you. Mm. Right. When, they, when they want you. But I can guarantee you that institution popped their mouth about how they were going to do better with oh, diversity yes. and equity and inclusion. And you yep. got doing amazing work, but no, not quite amazing enough to get tenure. Right. Right. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. But see, we, we, we experienced this. Over and over and time and time again. Yeah. And then the grad students, you know, are watching this and yeah. saying, well, then where is this safe? Is it safe for me to do the dissertation project I wanted to do? What's going to happen topic? to me? Right. right. And I say to those grad students that we continue to do the work mm-hmm. that we have been called to do that's sitting inside of you to do despite right. what you think may happen on the other side, mm-hmm. despite what you think may happen on the other side. And, and let me just toss in a little bit of, of, of coaching here with the scholars I work with, especially with the black women scholars I work with, who are working on work related to their own lives, mm. who are working on work related to their histories that are sometimes traumatic histories, you're typically going to get less work done because you need downtime from that space. Yeah. It's a, it's a, traumatic space to be in. You need downtime from it. So getting back to what Karen was talking about, about tenure, I think is really relevant for grad students too, is that sense of advisors, white advisors, if you want to be not performative, how about you look and say, what's the, uh, what's a comfortable pace for you, given the fact that you've decided to study this thing and this is not small in your life. So I think that you as a, you as graduate as a graduate student and black and indigenous scholars, in particular graduate scholars, I see working in their own community work, that it's just not going to move as fast. And yeah, it's, thing, it's, yeah, there's a lot of emotional labor right, that's right, involved. Right. And you can't remove that emotional labor when you're doing race work. But see, when you're a white person who doesn't have to deal with that, you don't understand the psychological, physiological, emotional processes that are happening when you're thinking about this type of work. You're just reading it, looking for grammatical errors, mm-hmm. trying to make sure I'm using the theory correctly. You know, yeah. you have to really take that into account. Yep. I'm blessed and fortunate enough to have an amazing black scholar uh, as an advisor. Right. I'm you so know. glad. And and that's the reason why I went where I went, because I wanted to be advised by a black man. I know that's not everybody's experience or a black woman. I wanted to be advised by someone who understood Mm -hmm. where I was coming from, who understood the passion behind my work. It was important for me to align myself with someone that I didn't have to filter myself with in every advisor meeting. Mm -hmm. 
I could go in, let my hair down, speak about how uncomfortable I am, how comfortable I am, talk about imposter syndrome, talk about my work in a way where I don't have to put on a muzzle, so to speak, to, to, to say what it is I want to say. So, yeah, I'm just throwing that in. I, I, I don't have those experience uh, experiences as it relates to, you know, being misadvised. I'm right. an excellent advisor. Travis right. Dixon. Oh, I'm really glad yeah. to hear that. Yeah, yeah. So, Deja, so, uh, I have a I have a question for you though that is yeah. on my mind so much today with this as uh, have, you know the Rittenhouse verdict came in and that makes is making me think about this massive white hysterical backlash against yeah. the things the quote unquote racial reckoning of 2020 such as it was. And it wasn't that great to begin with, with the white people, but at least whatever it was, now all the other white people are freaking out. Like, it's gone too far. Oh, my God, parents' rights. We have to, yeah. now we're literally burning books, you know. Yeah. What, what, do you, what do you think about that? About white people just going to the Let's see. <laughs> yeah. Look, no, about, you know, the about, backlash look, and what does it mean about, in terms of. What I say is white people going white. Yeah, <laughs> that's what we say, you know. But this has been happening for hundreds of years. Right. Yeah, hundreds of years. I, you know, Karen texts me, "Hey, are we are we good to do the podcast interview? You know, are you okay?" And I want to let you know, you know, I appreciate you giving me an opportunity to say, "Hey, look, the verdict came out today. Do you need the space? We don't have to do the podcast interview today." Hell, I didn't even know what you were talking about. Mm. You know, because I expected that verdict. Yeah. I'm, I'm, we live in America. Let's 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 keep it real, Karen. Yeah, right? Sure. I was like, oh, you talking about the verdict? Oh, I knew that was going to happen. Mm -hmm. So I had to. I prepared emotionally for the fact that that was going to happen while I'm out conferencing and networking and engaging. I couldn't let that shut me down, you know. Yeah. But there are people that do need that space, and I appreciate you giving me that space. That's that's allyship. That's you saying, you know what? I know I want your your interview for this podcast. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while. I know we have this pre-scheduled, but something happened today. And I may not be able to benefit from getting this information, uh -huh. from getting this audio from you today. I'll take a step back. Let me know when you want to reconvene. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a small example mm -hmm. of the type of work that can be done mm -hmm. because you're recognizing, look, I'm not experiencing this maybe like she is. Right. right. Let and me I, check on her, make sure she's good to even have this type of conversation with me yeah. today. I want um, you but, to know that I took a beat and really like sat with myself for a minute and said, okay, white Karen. Literally, like, Karen. Surprise! <laughs> yes. Karen spends a lot of time being laughed at for being Karen. Well, yeah, literally, Karen. Literally, <laughs> I was going to ask you about that, Karen. Like, uh, how does it feel to oh. to just despise Karen and what Karen means? When oh, we talk you about know what? It? I love it. It, it needed to happen. There needed to be a name for white ladies and our and our shit, our bullshit. And it just happened to be my name, which was the most popular name of 1964. So what can I say? So okay. I'm I'm fine with it. I think it's so funny. I I I. I share the memes whenever I can, but anyway. Well, and you yeah. also um, have had the opportunity a to few be that times Karen to, to to like see. Oh shit! Oh, I just did. I, I was Karen, or like, or me, me. Oh, when, I, when I threw a fit at an SFO when people didn't get my luggage to me fast enough. Oh. <laughs> and, then, and then she had to she had to go stand over in a corner and go, oh fuck, I was that 
person. Right. Damn it. Yeah. yeah. But I just want to say that even in the text today that I just sat there and said, okay, Karen, you know, like this, like, oh, you know, oh, this is terrible. You know, and all my white friends are doing the same thing, by the way. We all have yeah. all these text streams going. And, um, and I was just like, okay, well, that's, again, that is a white, a mode of white privilege to be that shocked by this. Yeah, because I was like, honey, you shocked? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I'm, that doesn't mean, but the thing I try to remember is I cannot be shocked, not shocked. I'm pissed. I can be pissed. I can sure. Be, I can be like afraid because I think it signals an even further I mean, I think building on what you're, you've already said, we've been doing this for hundreds of years yeah. and we are getting, we are moving, I believe we are moving into a flashpoint toward mm. a, a level of violence and a level of organization around the equivalent of a, you know, I don't throw this word around loosely, but a, the equivalent to a Nazi buildup, a Nazi state that begins, you know, really organized extermination. So, which, which we've been doing exterminate this nation, this white nation has been doing that for hundreds of years. But yeah, absolutely. so, but so my, my, my response to the verdict is not surprised, pissed and increasing fear. Um, mm. But. So, Sounds like a lot of black people. <laughs> not surprised. Yeah. Pissed. pissed <laughs> increasing fear, which is yeah. the state that we've had to be in right. for I mean, from the moment our feet hit the ground. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Exactly. You get to go out and just kill, kill, kill black bodies and go back home and mm-hmm. go back to sleep. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, okay. Sounds, sounds about white. Yeah. Sounds about white. <laughs> yep. Sounds about white. Yep. So I, I, I want to touch on, on something though, um, because I've had people after the TEDx talk, reach out to me via email and I've had conversations with several people about, so what are some of the consequences of performative allyship, right? What are the consequences that, that, that translate in, in, in real life when you've got this performance going on? And so it's people need to understand that the consequence is the perpetuation of this possessive investment in whiteness when you don't shut it down, when you don't call it out, when you don't make a full stop on it. And I love to, to think about the work of uh, American and Black Studies professor George Lippitt um, wrote a book in 98 where he says, public policy, private prejudice, if it's not checked, if it's not addressed, if it's not actively combated, it works together to create this possessive investment in whiteness that's Mm -hmm. responsible for racialized hierarchies in our society Mm -hmm. that we deal with on a daily basis. Right. And, you know, civil rights professor Cheryl Harris, she highlights the same thing. Well, she's talking about whiteness as property. Mm -hmm. Whiteness as property in our 1993 book, when you think about it, property embraces everything that a man or a woman may attach value to, right? So whiteness is valuable. This is why Kyle Rittenhouse gets to get off. Because you're white. There's value there. There is no value in those black bodies on the ground. And so if you don't attack it, if we don't call it what it is, if I don't have these conversations with you on this podcast, on another podcast, if I don't talk to my friends, be it white, black, whoever about the realities of what allyship claims to be the performance of allyship, then we're contributing to this perpetual possessive investment in whiteness and normative whiteness. Mm -hmm. 
I don't care about making anybody uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought about, oh, I'm a grad student. I'm saying some really bold things. How will this affect me in the future when it's time to get on the job market? If I put this on my CV and somebody listens to it, and am I going to scare people away? But then I think about what matters most to me and is not making you comfortable. If I can't say what I'm saying right now and still get a job at your institution, then that's not where I need to be. Right, right. Let's, if you don't let's agree just with what pause I'm saying, right there and say it again for the people in the back, right there. For the people in the back. And right. matter of fact, for the people in the front row that like to pretend that they're listening. Right. Thank you. Thank you. It, if they don't want you for who you are, you don't want to be there. I don't want to be there. If I can't say outright, this is bullshit. Whiteness as a normative structure is whack as hell. It's got to be stopped at a full stop. There's performance of allyship. There's a lot of lip service and no action going on behind it. You're performing in every which way and fashion when it relates to what you say you're going to do about um, injustice, social justice, all of these aspects. If I can't say that to you, if you can't hear this podcast interview, if I make you uncomfortable, if I can't get a job at your institution, at your organization, at wherever, that's not where I need to be. Because mm-hmm. I, I don't, I'm tired of filtering myself. I don't want to filter myself. You have to be on board with me. Yeah, preach. I hear you. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Ijeoma Aluo, she has a newsletter that she puts out. It's a great newsletter, and um, and she has a um, and for those of you who don't know at this point. How could you not know? She wrote, so you want to talk about race? She wrote mediocre. She has a newsletter that she sends out. And she did a newsletter this past week on the difficulty of of creating friendships and how she sucks at being a friend. And the reason she says she sucks at being a friend is that she got so schooled in actually not um, being her full self. Uh. And Mm. that she took up the role of taking care of other people, of mothering people, of being responsible and solving their problems. So they were never there for her. And so the the relationship kept falling down and breaking down. And it, to me, it was just what, when you were talking, it was like, if we cannot have, if we can't show up as our full selves, we cannot be in relationship. Yeah. And, and so anyway, it, it just reminded me of what she said and, no, you, you bring up an excellent point. And a lot of black people, a lot of times, you know, you, you know, we talk about code switching a lot. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And it's something that kind of naturally happens. I want to make it very clear that I'm, I'm not real well versed in the scholarship on code switching. But I as a black woman have experienced it. You know, right. hell, I've done it a few times these past few days at this conference. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's this automatic thing that you, you, you just do. But for the most part, as I'm growing into uh, further into my womanhood, growing further into a young scholar, a young academic in the spaces that I'm, that I find myself in, I strive to be the most authentic version of myself because I don't want to recreate my identity every time I go into a different room. Right. This is who I am. Right. These are the things that I care about. This is the type of work that I do. This is what I don't know because I'm aware that I don't know shit, but I'm also aware that I know a lot. Right. And if you can't accept me for where I am right now and who I'm striving to be, and what it is that I've embedded myself in based on my personal lived experiences, then we can't, we can't be not true friends. We can be fake friends. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We can be cordial. And I feel like that's the state 
of a lot of the interracial relationships is that you don't want to accept me. You don't want to see me where I am as a black person. Right. Mm-hmm. Not to the degree that it makes you uncomfortable. You only want to see me to the degree that you are comfortable. Mm-hmm. Or you it, don't have to accept accountability. Or that it serves you because then you can, as or a white that person, you can say, I have a... I have a black friend. Look at my black friend. I have a black friend. Yeah. Right. And I don't want to be your black friend. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. this, and this gets back to your, the, the whole discussion of allyship because I, it seems to tie very closely to the idea of um, tone policing of like, oh, I want to be your ally if, if you're not too this about it or that about it, or if you yeah. don't want to be too angry or too, too radical or too whatever. So, I mean, it's kind of a loop around, but it sounds like it's it's part of the same thread of, of if I can't be, if I can't talk to you, tell you the truth about my work, if I can't tell you the truth about what I'm interested in, if I can't tell you these things, or you'll pull your support like Lucy pulls away the damn football, then, yeah. it, then that's not, there we go with the performative allyship again. Absolutely. Oh, I love that you brought that up. It's like, oh, tone it down. You're you're too black. Right. You're too radical. Right. You're too this. You're too that for my institution, for my organization, for my friend circle. Mm-hmm. I mean, I understand that you're pissed that you've experienced something, but ooh, can we turn the volume down mm-hmm. on your frustration, on your anger? Right. And maybe, yeah. Maybe mm-hmm. we should change the, the, you know how they're always talking about in therapy, you should be I statements like, I'm too fragile. We're too oppressive. We're too interested in maintaining the norm. What you mean instead of like, like you're too instead angry? Instead of like you're too like, angry, how yeah, about if we like, make it? I'm too. Stay, I'm too pitiful. insecure to hear this. I'm too. <laughs> yeah. like, right. Like let's right. Take, let's put the let's put the problem where the problem is. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And so I think the way that we can go about reconciling this fake performative theatrical allyship that we see more and more because of digital media, because it's easy to throw your thumbs on a keyboard and say something that you that makes you feel good, mm-hmm. that serves your ego, that because you're white and you're saying it, you can get a hundred retweets and likes and oh my gosh, right? White people doing black work, oh my gosh, right? Yep. But other than that, we don't, we don't, we don't see anything. It, we're seeing it more and more, the way we reconcile it is really showing up really moving because it's a movement. It's always been a movement. Mm -hmm. Consistency. Listening Mm -hmm. to understand and not to respond because there's a difference. I want you to listen to me to understand what it is that I'm saying as best as you can from your limited experiences. But don't listen because, oh, I need to respond. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you just got to shut the hell up because there's nothing for you to say. Yep. Right? Yeah. Move. Listen. That's why I'm trying to be really quiet. (laughs) I'm trying not to interrupt really hard. You have no idea how much I usually interrupt, and I'm just like, "Mm." I spend most of my time talking to Karen being interrupted. (laughs) No, that's funny. Uh, No, and I I think that, you know, and I think one thing that I want to reemphasize is that I'd much rather people sit quiet and do nothing right? Than to be loud doing nothing. Yeah. Wow. I can respect the former. The latter gets nothing from me and Black people in general. If you're not going to do nothing, cool. Shut up. 
Don't say nothing because I don't see you. I don't hear you. I'm not. I'm, but when you start opening up your mouth and saying that you about that life and that you want to put in the work, the finance, the time, you want to move with us and then you do nothing, then there's a problem. And I think we need to start calling out all aspects of performative allyship in our personal lives and our professional lives, just like we calling out Karens and recording Karens, you know? Yeah, I remember my shock. So we live in Oregon and Portland, Oregon in general is really famous. I mean, uh, it is extraordinarily anti-Black and has this Mm. whole history of anti-Blackness. And Portland is kind of this stealth racist city that doesn't always get called out for its racism. It's not stealth racist for the people who live there. Yeah, well, for... I mean, it's not stealth. It's not to the people living to the black people living there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I got that. Yeah, it's It's the like the white people in Oregon don't fully grasp. Anyway, I have a point. My point is, is that I was shocked. Um, uh, It was a learning moment for me. Got to hear a lot of black folks on Twitter saying that it's actually easier to be in the South in many ways because the racism's right there. It's right there. You know what you're dealing with, as opposed to a place like Portland where everybody is like performing. Mm-hmm. allyship and the racism is just as bad but it's all it's all coded and it's disguised disguised yes. and stuff like that and so that was another part of my journey was understanding the way that that works yeah yeah perfect thank you karen thank you kale y'all thank have a good rest you. of your have a great Friday. time all right bye, Bye-bye. Bye-bye.